Let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer, and after I do so, can I get a volunteer to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18? Any takers on that? Whitworth. Thank you, brother. Let you pull your phone out. All right, guys, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll dive right in. I'm super excited to see what God has in store for us this morning. Father, I'm thankful for another Lord's Day, and I'm sure that is the same feeling that all of us have here this morning, that we get to come together for fellowship, for corporate worship, for Bible study, for prayer, all the ordinary means of grace that you have ordained to build us up in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for his perfect life, his substitutionary death on the cross, his bodily resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, his intercessory work at your right hand, and how all of those benefits are applied to every person who would come to him by faith alone. God, I thank you for Lily this morning, for us to be able to celebrate her birthday, for us to be able to just have a great time together. Um, Thank you for the hospitality that was provided from from Lisa and Thomas and all those in leadership who, who sacrifice their time and their energy to serve our youth and love them well. Father, I pray for rich blessings upon them and upon this ministry. May we continue to exalt you as we hold to a high view of your word and seek to live it out in every aspect of our lives. And God, as we now prepare for the Thanksgiving holiday, I just ask that our hearts would be overflowing with gratitude as we spend time with friends and family and other loved ones over the course of this week. We commit the rest of this day and this week to you, Father, and pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, Wit, go ahead and read 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, and then we'll jump right on in here. Yeah, that's good. Well, you're going on. I mean, it's all good, right? It's all the Word of God. But uh, just that passage uh, was all we needed to focus on here for just introductory purposes. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. Why? Paul answers that question. Because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Remember, back in January, we did a lesson on the distinction between God's sovereign will and God's commanded will. Does anybody remember which of those two dimensions of the will of God we are held accountable to know and obey? The commanded will, right? So one of the key aspects, remember the commanded will, what we learned is if you were to summarize every commandment in the Bible, there's ultimately six categories that those commandments would fall in. To be saved, to be filled with the Spirit, to be sanctified, to be submissive to those in authority, to be willing to suffer for the sake of the kingdom of God, and to be thankful at all times. Six primary categories in which every biblical command could ultimately be fit into. And I gave you all that little booklet, uh, Found God's Will, by John MacArthur, which really got into some of the, the details of each of those six commandments, or excuse me, six, each of those six categories of God's commanded will. Um, and this is that sixth category, to be thankful in everything. And as we enter into the Thanksgiving season, I just figured that would be a really good thought for us before we dive into what we're going to be covering in Forerunners of the Faith, that we need to be thankful. We have so many things to be thankful for. Most importantly, of course, 
If you're a believer this morning, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior by faith alone, then you have the greatest reason to be thankful because you're an adopted son or daughter in Christ and that your citizenship is in heaven and that God regards you as the apple of his eye. Not apple uh, in the sense of what we ate this morning, but as the chief source of delight. Um, And, of course, going out of the realm of spiritual blessings, which we have many spiritual blessings. In fact, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1. Think about all the physical, temporal, earthly blessings that you had to be thankful for. Um, if If you're married, your spouse, if you're here as a youth, your parents... Um, your family members, the ability to go and, and go to school and, and go to college eventually, um, to play sports, to play in band, and, and to, to be able just to go and do things for fun. We were talking about this on the way to the playoff game on Friday night. You know, there's places in the world where they would give anything on a Friday night to go and watch a game of high school football just because they want to, just because they want to have fun. And there's places all over the world right now who are in – uh, political oppressed regions of the world, uh, religious oppressed regions of the world. Um, think of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now who are being hunted down and e- executed for their faith in Christ. You know, we have many, many things to be thankful for living in Edna, Texas in 2021. I know it can be uh, boring sometimes in Edna, but guys, count your blessings. Be grateful for Um, everything that God's given us, not just spiritually, but also in terms of our day-to-day temporal, earthly lives. Just some food for thought uh, in light of the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday and even going into Christmas, all the wonderful things we have to be thankful for. Um, And with that in mind, we'll now transition to Roman numeral 4. Roman numeral 4, the conversions of Saul and Cornelius, dealing primarily with chapters 9 and 10 in the book of Acts. We are continuing our flyover of the book of Acts, looking into the first really 30 to 35 years of church history. Does anybody remember who wrote the book of Acts? Luke, right? Very good. And what Luke is doing is he's trying to show us how the gospel did what? What is the what is the main focus of Acts? What are we tracking with from Acts one to Acts twenty eight during that thirty five year flyover overview of church history, first century church history, I should say? Does anybody remember what we're tracking with there? How the gospel spread, right? So the gospel spread right from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and then eventually to the Gentiles, that is to the surrounding nations on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. And over the last 2,000 years, we see the fruit of that even today, right? The gospel didn't go to North America during the first century. Didn't go to Australia, didn't go to South Africa, didn't go to a, a multitude of places that it has since spread to. And if the Lord should tarry in the next couple thousand years, the gospel is going to go to other places in the world that to this day still have not had exposure to the gospel or to biblical truth. So we're seeing the continual fulfillment in our day of Acts 1-8, the Great Commission mandate as also recorded in Matthew 28, 18-20. But we also saw first century fulfillment to some extent based on how Luke is setting for us the flow of how the book of Acts is going to unfold. So that's the big picture. That's the big picture of the book of Acts. 
For today, we're going to turn uh, really to get a flyover analysis of Acts 9 and 10. Notice they're right under the heading, the conversions of Saul and Cornelius, Roman numeral 4. There's three blanks, and uh, should be at least three blanks right there at the beginning of that section. I'm going to give you those blanks. If you've got a pen, feel free to fill that in. Our curriculum says that one of the primary persecutors of the church was a man named Saul. That's the first blank. Saul, S-A-U-L. Saul was his Hebrew name. That's the second blank. First blank is Saul. Second blank is Hebrew. And third blank, later, Saul would be known by his Greek name, Paul. So, I, I don't know how many times you might have heard this preached. I know I did growing up, but uh, typically it would go something like this. You know, Saul was Paul's past life. That was his pre-Christ life. And then God gave him a new name. He made him a new creature, so he gave him a new name. Well, that sounds really good preaching-wise, but um, his name didn't actually change. Uh, Saul is literally just transliterated to Paul in Greek. So Saul in Hebrew is transliterated into Paul in Greek. And it's interesting when the gospel starts really going to the Gentiles in the book of Acts, that's when you see the, the, the name really transition from Saul to Paul. And because, because Paul, the apostle Paul, was the apostle to the Gentiles, it would make sense that he would go by a Greek name, right? Because the Gentiles, largely, that he was ministering to in the first century Roman Empire, they primarily spoke Greek. But Paul was a Jew, he's a Hebrew, so his natural name was Saul. So Saul, Paul, same figure, we call him Paul, mainly because that's how most of the New Testament uh, labels him. But just a little Bible trivia fact that uh, you might not have known before. There was never actually a time in which his name changed. Paul is just the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Saul. So take that uh, for whatever you want to take it for. Moving on now. It says, Saul was instrumental in scattering the church by persecuting Christians. Yet the Lord would later use Saul to minister to the scattered church. In fact, some of the believers who fled Jerusalem as a result of Stephen's martyrdom would be a part of the church in Syrian Antioch, a church that Saul would eventually co-pastor with, here's blank number four, Barnabas. We're going to read a little bit about this church in Antioch. I need a volunteer to read Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. Uh, Lily, go ahead and take that. And everybody, if you've got a Bible, make sure you're following along. It's always important to make sure that you're seeing these truths in the text of Scripture. Reading our Bible. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19, going on to verse 26. Whenever you're ready, Lily, you got it. Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch 
and began to speak Greek also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, had done he was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples, no, the disciples were called Christians. Very good. Thank you for reading that, Lily. Now, um, it's interesting, isn't it? Did y'all catch what's recorded there in verse 26 right at the very end? Did you catch it? First time. So the word Christian just means little Christ, followers of Christ, um, Either of those or the technical term uh, or the technical meaning of that term. And uh, up to that point, they were just simply known as followers of the way. Go to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. I'll read that to you. It says, Saul, who was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So, uh, isn't that interesting? You have uh, Christians recognized, regarded as, identifying themselves as followers of the way. Jesus, he is the way, the truth, and the life, John fourteen six. So, that was really what you would say. Walk around. Yeah, I'm a follower of the way. Sounds kind of cool, doesn't it? Uh, that's what you would have called yourself uh, as a disciple. You might have said, I'm also a disciple of, of Jesus. That, that's also a possibility. But um, it's interesting that Luke, who was a historian, he was very meticulous in his details. The word meticulous just means uh, very attentive, very intentional. He was very at- intentional with making sure that the details were spot on in his gospel and in the book of Acts. And he would have been, he, he would have been very precise in saying, This moment, specifically at Antioch, that's when we started calling ourselves Christians. So um, that's, again, a little Bible trivia for you. Things get interesting, though, now in our curriculum as we move forward. I think we're going to have some good conversations at this point. Buznitz notes that the account of Saul's conversion is well known. There's three texts that we are going to read, and they're long. So everybody's going to have to volunteer um, to read a few verses. So we're going to just, I need hands to go up. Um, the first text is in Acts chapter 9. Um, we're going to read verses 1 through 19. So Emma, you're going to take, I want you to take verses 1 through 6. Whit, I want you to take verses 7 through 12. Hannah, I want you to take verses 13 through 19. We're going to read each of the accounts from the book of Acts where Paul gives a testimony 
about his conversion, his Damascus Road experience. Beginning in Acts chapter 9. So everybody should be in Acts 9 right now. Everybody, ha- everybody should have their Bible open to the book of Acts chapter 9. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 19 cumulatively. Whenever you're ready, Emma, kick us off. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the highest priest and asked letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus. 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 So if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them down to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, journeyed through, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and Suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Where, Who are you, Lord? And then, then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise, and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Good. The man who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Jews for a man from Tarsus named Saul, where he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Yeah. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your state of Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests Very good, man. I, I want to talk about that passage so bad that we got two more we got to go through. Um, Acts 22, verses 3 through 18. The second testimony of Saul's Damascus Road conversion experience. Acts 22, verses 3 through 18. So uh, three volunteers now who did not just read. I need a volunteer to read verses... Three through eight. Volunteer to read verses three through eight of Acts twenty-two. All right, good, Macy. Uh, verses nine through thirteen. All right, Lily, and then verses fourteen through eighteen. Fourteen through eighteen. Thank you, Allie. 
All right, so everybody should be flipping over now in your Bibles to Acts 22. And we're going to start our reading in verse 3. Uh, yes. You're doing a great job. Yeah, uh, verse 14. And uh, verse 18. Very good. Thank you, ladies, for reading. Um, Last text, uh, Acts 26, verses 9 through 18. 
All right, you want to take them all? Yeah. All right, go for it. Good. Well, thank you for reading, everybody. I uh, really appreciate that. So, um, as Buzinitz notes, uh, getting back to uh, our curriculum here, Paul's encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus changed not only his life forever, but it also changed the course of church history. As the last of the apostles, Paul would help establish numerous churches, and he would write more than half of the New Testament. Now, there's many things we could say about each of these testimonies, each of these accounts of Paul being saved. But there's really one that stands out in all three. What I did is I prepared for this lesson as I took each of these three accounts and I put them up side by side. And there's a common theme in each of the three that I really want us to focus on this morning. I'm going to reread a few verses from each in order to set up the question that I want to ask. Okay? So let me ask the question, and I'll read the text, and then we'll talk about the question, okay? Um, So the question is this. What does Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, Acts chapter 22, verse 10 and verses 14 through 15, and Acts 26, verses 16 through 18, all indicate about God's sovereignty and salvation, and in our life's calling. Now, let me read those texts. I want you to think about how these texts I'm about to read stress the sovereignty of God and our salvation and the sovereignty of God and what God calls us to do as believers. So starting in Acts 9, verses 15 and 16. The Lord said to Paul, Go, or he didn't say this to Paul. He said this to Ananias, referring to Paul. Uh, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. All right, now Acts 22, 10, and verses 14 and 15. Paul said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to him, Get up and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. Verses 14 and 15. And he said, 
The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. And then lastly, Acts 26, verses 16 through 18. Jesus saying this to Paul, Get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Okay, so each of those texts, what did we see there? What, what's the common thread, first and foremost? What little phrase did we see there? What words did we see used, reiterated, for the purpose of Jesus saving Paul? Did you catch them? It happened in each of the three texts. I'll start, I'll start in Acts 9.15. Listen to this. Go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine. There's salvation. Here's the, and here's his life's calling. To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And oh, by the way, Jesus says, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for my name's sake. The one who dispensed suffering and persecution on the earliest Christians is now to be a vessel of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to, to those who are captive, to those who are, who are held in the powers of Satan, the, the kingdom of darkness. And the one who used to deal suffering is now going to be on the receiving end of great suffering for the sake of Christ. Okay, now... Um, Again, let me, let me stress this. Acts 22, I want you to see this. I want you to see this. What shall I do, Lord? Paul asked. The Lord said to him, Get up, go into Damascus, and there you'll be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. Verse 14, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear an utterance from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to all men of what you've seen and heard. That reference to all men, of course, being a reference to those who are of Jewish ethnicity and those who are of a Gentile ethnicity. And then lastly, again, Acts 26, in verse 16. Get up, Jesus said to Paul. Stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to here it is again, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people, from the Gentiles, to whom I'm sending you, so that they may be saved. That's the paraphrase of verse 18. So let's, let's think about this now. Let's think analytically about these three passages regarding the salvation and the commissioning of the Apostle Paul. What do those three texts indicate about God's sovereignty and salvation and His sovereignty in our life's calling? What do those texts indicate to us?
Yeah. Yeah. Right. So through the, through the lens of God's sovereignty, Paul would have never chosen to be the apostle to Gentiles. Paul would have never chosen to be an instrument of suffering for the sake of Christ's name had God and the person of Jesus Christ appeared to him on that Damascus road as Paul was going to persecute and even kill Christians. Paul would have never just decided in the midst of all that to say, hey, you know, I think I'm going to be a Christian now. I think I'm going to suffer incredible hardship as well as a result of being a Christian. No, no, God plucked him out of that life of sin and he gave him a purpose. He gave him a divine commission, a divine summons to go and to preach and to teach the gospel, to disciple Christians and to suffer. Suffering is a calling for the Christian life, my friends, as hard as that is for us to grasp. God works profoundly and mysteriously through trials, hardships, and even suffering. Nobody would choose that on their own initiative. Listen to this testimony. You want to you see how this came true for Paul? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, one of the most famous passages regarding the life of Paul. Verses 23 and following. Paul referring to the genuine authenticity of his own calling as an apostle in contrast to those who were self-appointed apostles who had not received Christ's unique commissioning. He, he's, he's using their, their falsehood. He's using their inauthenticity as a contrast to his authenticity. Listen to this. Are those false apostles servants of Christ? Rhetorical question. They're not. He says, well, I speak as if I'm insane. In far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That's just one lash away generally from what would kill a man. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I've spent in the deep waters of the sea. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is also the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. My friends, that was the fulfillment of what Jesus called him into. Jesus made good on his promise. He's going to have to suffer mightily for my name's sake, but he is my chosen instrument. I've given him a calling and a purpose, and he will go and he will be my apostle to the Gentiles. God is absolutely sovereign over your salvation. He's absolutely sovereign over whatever your life's calling might be, whether it's one of difficulty, whether it's one of prosperity. There is a divinely ordained purpose on your life and on my life that has been established firmly in the heavens by the triune God. That is the truth of Scripture. That's what we see in Paul's life. And here, listen to this. Here's an encouragement for you. 
This same guy who went through all of those horrific hardships and difficulties, he could turn around in Philippians 4, verses 11 and following. Listen to this. This is the same man. He actually writes this years after 2 Corinthians. This is remarkable. Paul, you've gone through such hardships. Is it really worth it? Well, this is what he says. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's Paul saying there? He's saying this. Because of Jesus Christ in me and strengthening me to endure any circumstance He places me in, I'm content because I know that I will accomplish the purpose that God has given me in that moment. And as such, I'm content because God in the person of Jesus Christ will strengthen me through whatever He leads me into. And He'll do the same for you. None of us will likely go through any of the trials that the Apostle Paul went through, but we will go through hardships and trials and difficulty in this life. And God will strengthen you to endure through those, through those difficulties. He will, by His Spirit, give you the grace to be content in those circumstances. And you will fulfill the exact calling and purpose on your life that God has given to you, even if it's hard. I hope that's an encouragement for you as we transition now to the next portion of Roman numeral 4. Buznitz writes that in God's perfect plan, a former Pharisee became the apostle to the Gentiles. We've talked about that. And Luke's 10, or excuse me, in Acts 10, Luke highlights the first Gentile conversion, the conversion of Cornelius and his family. For 1,500 years from the time of Moses, God worked primarily through the nation of Israel to accomplish His saving purposes. But in the church age, the gospel would extend to all people of every nation. That's the whole trajectory of the book of Acts we talked about earlier. To underscore this, to underscore the reality of the gospel extending to all people of every nation, God sent Peter to preach to a Gentile man named Cornelius. The Lord prepared Peter by showing him a vision of unclean animals and telling him not to regard as unclean what God had cleansed. Now, I need a volunteer to read Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. Hannah, you can take that. And this is, as we read this, Hannah, as you read this text, I want to give you the historical background. Peter, a Jew, and, and most of the Christians at this point, the vast majority of them at this point, were Jewish. They would have been very familiar with the Old Testament. And I want to read you from Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 through 47. This is the framework. This is the mindset in which Peter, as we're going to read about here in this text, this is the mindset that Peter and all of the earliest Jewish Christians would have had. This is why there was such a thing as, as, as what was regarded as clean and unclean things to eat. Listen to this, Leviticus eleven forty four and following. God speaking to Moses in the old covenant era. This would have been during the wilderness wanderings after the Exodus and before entering the promised land. 
God says this. He says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, to me, and be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the law regarding the animal and the bird and every living thing that moves in the waters and everything that swarms on the earth to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean and between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten. So that's the framework. That's the mentality that these Jewish Christians and Jewish believers for centuries before these events taking place in Acts would have been familiar with. This is their worldview. Now, God's going to shock that worldview here. Hannah, go ahead and read our text. Can you imagine too, like Peter, I'm such a Peter, like the most high God is telling you to do something and you look at it and say, by no means will I do this. Like I, I see a lot of myself in Peter, uh, typically, uh, more, more of the bad than the good. Um, and, and it's, it's remarkable how God just, he's so patient and gracious with us. I mean, to, to have the audacity to tell God that, um, anyways, so that's the vision, okay? I want to I give you, this isn't in our curriculum, but I want to give you the interpretation of that vision. This is the significance, okay? So, we're going to read verses 24 and following, Acts 10. On the following day, Peter entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius... Cornelius is a non-Jew, he's a Gentile, okay? Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he talked with them, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to him, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. This is why I came without even raising any objection. So I asked for what reason you have sent for me. Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here before God to hear all that you have been commanded to speak by the Lord. 
Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. And then he goes on to speak at length about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I want to read that. It's tempting just to skip over, but what better thing to consume our minds with? Listen to this. This is the gospel. If, if, you're, if you're a believer here, this is our hope in life and death. Peter says, The word which Jesus sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people. Here's another thing. Sovereignty of God. Was Jesus visible to all people? No. But to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us who ate and drank with them after he arose from the dead. And Jesus ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and of the dead. Of Jesus, do some of the prophets bear witness through to him? No. Of Jesus, all the prophets bear witness to him that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. My friends, read the Old Testament with the expectation that you'll find Christ. He's all throughout the Old Testament in types and pictures and prophecies. He's there. Look for him. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Fulfillment of Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all the nations, to the Gentiles. We're seeing that fulfillment here as early as Acts 10. I want to read to you briefly a commentary from J. Sklar's work on the book of Leviticus. Because a lot of us, guys, we don't see the significance of the Old Covenant dietary laws. It's foreign to us. We're Gentiles. We're not only living 2,000 years since the events recorded in Acts took place, we're, we're living probably 4,000 plus years since the, the, the laws prescribed in Leviticus would have been given. So we're far removed. We're not Jewish, and we're 4,000 plus years removed from when those laws were given. And this kind of pertains to looking for Christ in the Old Testament. This is why there were laws. Let me read this to you. This is from J. Sklar, commentary on Leviticus 11, 44 to 47, which we read earlier against the backdrop of the passage in Acts 10. Sklar writes that whatever the case may be, the Lord provided these old covenant dietary laws about ritually pure and impure animals as a way of accomplishing at least three goals. Three goals here. First, 
These dietary laws set the Israelites apart as his people. If people do not eat meat today, they are identified as vegetarians. But if people did not eat these impure animals in those days, they were identified as the Lord's followers. So purpose number one for the dietary laws, a way of setting apart the Israelites from the rest of the pagan people groups that were around them. Second, second goal, they understood the Lord's holiness to the Israelites, underscored the Lord's holiness to the Israelites. Impurity, Sklar says, is the opposite of holiness and is incompatible with it. Every time Israelites avoided eating impure animals, they would be reminded that these animals were forbidden because their God was holy. Third, third goal, these laws served as a reminder to seek purity in all of life. The Old Testament regularly uses the language of ritual purity and impurity to describe the moral purity the Israelites are to have and the moral impurity they are to avoid. And he lists several cross-references here. Psalm 24, 2 and 3, Isaiah 1, 16, Jeremiah 4, 14. If the listener wants to go and check those out, feel free to do so. But Sklar continues, he says, This suggests that laws on ritual purity and impurity were to provide the Israelites with a constant reminder. Just as you seek ritual purity in all of life, so do likewise in terms of moral purity. So, that's great. These three goals for the Israelites. Dewey, this is 4,000 plus years ago. Why are you sharing this with us? Well, listen to the New Testament application here. This is fascinating. Sklar notes this. And I hope this will hit home with all of us this morning. Sklar writes, The New Testament leaves behind the cultural concept of ritual purity and impurity. And he cites texts like Mark 7, 19, Acts 15, Romans 14, 14, and Ephesians 2, 11 through 12. So the New Testament leaves behind the cultural concept of ritual purity and impurity. Nevertheless, the New Testament vigorously maintains that believers are to seek moral purity and avoid moral impurity in every aspect of their lives, as it was for the Israelites. This is to be a response of worshipful obedience to the Lord's redeeming activity in our lives and a way of acknowledging and reflecting His own holiness to a watching world. What's the significance of the dietary laws in the Old Testament? Simply this. It was a picture of the moral purity in which believers are to strive for as God's witnessing agents before watching pagan, unbelieving world. They were types and shadows of the spiritual calling that you and I have in this day to bear witness to the character and the holiness and the purity of Almighty God and the various domains of life that He has commissioned us into. That's the backdrop. That's the significance. That is the so what, if you will, of Acts 10 and its correlation to Leviticus 11. Well, Buznitz commenting on all of this summarizes the account we just referred to in Acts, 11, or Acts 10 in this way. He says, Normally the Jewish people would not enter the house of a Gentile since doing so rendered a person ceremonially unclean. But Peter understood the point of the vision that he had received from God. He entered the house of Cornelius and he presented the gospel. Incredibly, 
Cornelius and the members of his household responded to the gospel in saving faith. The Holy Spirit verified the authenticity of their faith by indwelling them in the same way that he indwelt the apostles on the day of Pentecost. And because they had believed in Christ and received the Holy Spirit, Peter instructed them to be baptized. And let me just say this by way of pastoral application. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior today and you're not baptized, I just want to encourage you to follow through in obedience to the command of Scripture. There is no biblical category for a Christian who is not baptized. There's just not one. Throughout the whole New Testament, other than the thief on the cross, or really uh, remarkably extraordinary circumstances, if you come to faith in Christ, you get baptized. That's what baptism is. Baptism doesn't save you. It doesn't give you any lucky charm or, or, or special standing before God. You're not any more or less saved if you're not baptized. But what baptism does is it, number one, we're commanded to be baptized, so it's obedience to a command. And secondly, it's an expression of worship. It shows, a, it's an external illustration of what's happened internally. Your old self has been crucified with Christ and laid to rest. And by virtue of the renewing work of the Holy Spirit through regeneration, through you coming to saving faith, you have been raised up with Christ. You've been resurrected with Christ to newness of life. You're a new creature. The old has gone. It's been crucified and buried with Christ. The new has come. You have been raised with Christ. That's the significance of baptism. So I just want to encourage you, as we've seen demonstrated in the book of Acts, as we see commanded throughout the totality of the New Testament, if anyone in here is a follower of Christ and has not been baptized, please meet with Brother Robert as soon as you can to discuss those next steps. Prayerfully consider being obedient to this command in Scripture and using the act of baptism as a way of expressing worship to the triune God in the presence of the saints at FBC Edna. We'll celebrate with you. I pray that if this applies to anybody, you would seriously consider baptism. Now, by way of conclusion, way of concluding Roman numeral 4. Buznitz concludes with this. As a result of this dramatic conversion, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem recognized that the message of salvation was equally available to both Jews and Gentiles alike. And that is demonstrated in Acts eleven fifteen through 18. I'll read that. Give you guys a break. Follow along, though, in your Bible, if you can. Acts chapter 11, verse 15 through 18. This is testifying to how the message of salvation is equally available to all ethnicities, both Jew and Gentile. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance 
that leads to life. My friends, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter how much money you may or may not have. It doesn't matter how significant you may or may not be. It doesn't matter what family you're part of. Any person who is willing to exercise faith in Jesus Christ can be saved. If you will believe in Jesus Christ, regardless of who you are, what family you come from, what social standing you might have, all that, throw it out the window. It's irrelevant. Any sinner who is willing to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior by faith will be saved. That's a promise. And that's the beauty of the Gospel. God being rich in mercy and grace will save anybody who will believe in Jesus. And I trust that all of you have done so at this point in your life. I want to give you one last text to meditate on before we close in a word of prayer. Uh, I would like somebody to read for us Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. Revelation chapter 5 and verses 9 through 10. This is the eschatological or the consummate, the eternal fulfillment of what I just proclaimed to you on the basis of Acts 11, 15 through 18. That it doesn't matter what your ethnicity might be. It doesn't matter what your background may be. It doesn't matter who you are or who your family may be. If you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. And this is true for all people groups. This is the heavenly vision of this fulfillment. Who would be willing to read this text before we close in prayer? Revelation 5 and verses 9 and 10. Michael. Thank you, buddy. Revelation chapter 5 and verses 9 and 10. good my friends that is the glorious hope we have to look forward to someday in the new heavens and the new earth where a people group from every tribe tongue and nation that's ever existed will be represented there as god's people worshiping him forever and ever fellowshipping with one another forever and ever we're going to get to spend eternity getting to know every believer from every part of the world, every people group that's ever existed. We're going to have sinless communion and fellowship with one another. We're going to worship the living God. He is going to be there in glory, face to face with us. And that is what I want you to think about as we head into this time of corporate worship. As we go over to the sanctuary, my friends, view this not as just a chore, not as just something you do to check a box. But this is a very small sliver, a foretaste of that text in Revelation 5. Let's close in prayer and we'll head over for corporate worship. Feel free to sit with the youth um, if you're not going to sit with your family. We'll be in the front of the sanctuary. Let's pray. Lord God, we long to see you face to face. 
though we have so many things on this earth that vie for our affection. And Lord, we, we enjoy life on this earth. Lord, there's so many good things that you've blessed us with to enjoy, even in a fallen world. But God, I trust that the cry of our heart ultimately, even greater than the things we love and enjoy here on the earth, that our, our fundamental desire is to be with you, is to be with the redeemed, to, to enjoy rich communion and fellowship with one another as your people. And Lord, to see you face to face in glory, to enjoy you from the depths of our soul and every fabric of our being, whatever our glorified, resurrected existence looks like, Lord, we long for that blissful experience that will never end. God, I trust every person in here today has come to know you through faith in Jesus Christ. If there's not anyone, uh, or if there is somebody, Lord, who doesn't know you, I pray, God, that even now, today, they would experience salvation, Father, that you would give them eyes to see their need for salvation, ears to hear the truth, the saving truth of the gospel, and a heart to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior by faith alone. For those of us who do know you, Lord, we just ask that we would glorify you during this time of corporate worship that we're about to transition into with the rest of the brethren here at FBC Edna. And Father, may you move in power during this holiday season. We love you, God. We thank you for loving us first in Christ Jesus, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen.